today on Fuzzy Logic. We are talking about the thing that's on everyone's lips and that's floating out in the air in Canberra at the moment. We're going to be talking bushfires, the science behind our bushfires, what's going on and some of the health effects that we're feeling. It's coming up right here for your science on a Sunday on Fuzzy Logic. Good morning, Canberra. My name is Broderick Matthews, and it's a pleasure to have you with us this morning as uh, we are beginning Fuzzy Logic here on 2XXFM 98.3 Community Radio in Canberra. You may have woken up to an interesting morning in Canberra this morning. Uh, the sky was yellow, there's a lot of smoke in the air, and there's a lot of things going on. And I thought uh, this is an opportunity here on Fuzzy Logic to share some of the science behind what's been happening. Yesterday, it was uh, Canberra's hottest day on record. Temperature hit 43.1. That's beating all previous records. Uh, the official records have the previous highest back in 1968 at 42.2. And uh, we just smashed it out the park. And across the year, Australia's annual mean temperature was one and a half degrees above the previous, the 1961 to 90 average, and well above the previous hottest year in 2013. The drought has been dragging on. The national average rainfall for the year was 277 mil, well below that previous low of 314 mil back in the 1982, uh, 1902 Federation drought. All this has come together to give us uh, bushfires that are more intense and lasting longer than we've seen in the past. And on top of this, we've got people working hard to fight these fires. We've got people who are worried for themselves and their property right now. We've got people scared for the future and what new unknowns that might bring. More problems that uh, we aren't necessarily prepared to cope with. So today on Fuzzy Logic... We're going to try and do a little bit that we can uh, by sharing some of the science behind what's going on. Later today, I'm going to welcome to the studio local cardiologist, Dr AJ Hunter from Doctors for the Environment Australia to share what this smoke means for us and our health. But for the moment, I'd like to welcome our first guest to the microphone. Uh, joining us from the ANU Fenner School of Environment and Society, Dr Jeff Carey, a bushfire scientist. Welcome, Jeff. G'day, Broderick. Uh, fantastic to have you in this morning. Thanks for making uh, time for us today. Uh, look, uh, you're a, a bushfire scientist. Uh, what uh, what were your feelings coming into this summer? Well, as you, you I mean, you introduced it very nicely. Uh, uh, an extended drought in uh, Australia, across Australia, uh, uh, Australia's driest year on record. Uh, uh, very high temperatures uh, throughout last year and uh, just we've seen it uh, continued over the last couple of days. There were repeated warnings about a bad fire season from experts leading into the fire season and so I think it was clear that there was going to be considerable bushfire activity across Australia this year. That's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it was certainly clear from there and I guess in terms of um, uh, your work, uh, we were talking earlier and it covers a, a whole range of different areas about what's going on. Um, so, look, let's start, um, let's start with the, the uh, basics. What, what could you see from this, uh, this, these, 
of the the previously unprecedented uh, temperatures that we'd had throughout the year, those low levels of drought. What's that telling you with your experience as a bushfire scientist? Well, uh, droughts are synonymous with bushfires in Australia. Most of the, the, the major bushfire seasons in Australia have been accompanied by, you know, varying levels of drought, you know, whether it be... Uh, the major fires of 1939, the Ash Wednesday fires of 83, uh, the Black Saturday fires in 2009, uh, the 2013 fires in the Blue Mountains. Uh, uh, this is a very uh, deep and extended drought. Uh, it's been widely discussed, the climatic and, and weather mechanisms behind this drought, the role of the Indian Ocean, for example, the cooler waters off Indonesia and the warmer waters off Africa, you know, not really giving Australia that uh, convective uh, moisture generation to our northwest, resulting in uh, uh, much drier conditions and drought. Uh, there's there's, a, there's a, another weather pattern uh, known as SAM, the Southern Annular Mode. We won't go into the mechanisms, but it fluctuates north and south around uh, uh, the South Pole. Uh, and it's been behaving in a particular way that gives us, you know, strong westerly dry westerly winds across Australia. And so... Uh, you, you know, these are the factors leading into this drought. Drought is one of the precursors for bushfires in Australia. Of course, you need uh, severe fire weather like we saw uh, at various times over the last few months on New Year's Eve and, of course, yesterday. Uh, you need ignition sources. Um, in this season, there's been a lot of lightning ignition sources. At other times, there's, you know, failed power line, infrastructure and the like. Uh, and, of course, you need uh, available fuel to burn. And so putting all those things together, the serious drought, the significant drought was a major precursor for a, for a major bushfire season. Mm, that's right. And yesterday uh, was, of course, uh, the big day when things were, were really predicted to be going bad. Uh, there was a lot of preparation done uh, throughout the south coast. Uh, New South Wales got put in a state of emergency, as did Victoria. We were on a state of um, uh, heightened awareness of being alert here in the ACT. Um, so all those those conditions coming together was was exactly what we were seeing yesterday. Um, what was what was the, what were the really worrying parts of all of that? Well, the real, really worrying part of yesterday was the severe fire. Well, of course, the the, the going fires. I mean, there's uh, you, you know uh, uh, you know uh, close to 150 fires burning in New South Wales. We won't go through state by state, no. but for example, New South Wales, you know, there's a, a you know at least a dozen or so really major fires with with you know hundreds of kilometre of going fire line that's either being contained or is uncontained or uncontrolled. And so to have a weather event like yesterday coming through with that. Uh, 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 trough and frontal system coming through. The Bureau of Meteorology explained nicely uh, that that was a slow-moving system, which meant that those strong northwesterly winds ahead of that trough um, would persist for uh, would be strong and would persist for a very considerable period, and that's what happened yesterday. And listeners in Canberra and elsewhere listening online would have, if they were in southeastern Australia, would have experienced that. Of course, uh, after the trough and the front came through, typically what happens is a southwesterly change, which was observed uh, in. You know, the southern parts of southwestern Australia. Interestingly enough, last night in Canberra, we appeared to have an easterly change, which brought in the smoke. Mm -hmm. I don't know, it was about 9 or 10 pm. Everyone sort of activated their smoke management plans at home and uh, to deal with that. Uh, but really, those strong northwesterly winds fanning those going fires, those running fires. There's always the concern of new ignitions. Uh, followed by the wind change. And the wind change, the southwesterly wind change, will have the effect of turning. Uh, the flank of the fire, the northeasterly flank of the fire, into a running head fire uh, across many, you know, tens of kilometres, hundreds of kilometres, depending on how you total the fires up. Yeah, so it's just changing the way the fire's burning and, and increasing the potential burn through there. 
Um, is that right? That, that's right. And, and with that wind change and ahead of the wind change and with a wind change of that sort, uh, of course, increased amber activity causing spot fires ahead of the main fire fronts. Uh, you know, some of our earlier research looking at uh, the behaviour of firebrands, uh, you, you know, bits of combustible material in wind tunnels in conjunction with the CSIRO bushfire group, you know, showed that these long ribbons of bark, for example, uh, can burn for 20 or 30 minutes. Uh, they're lofted up ahead of the fire front and they're transported by the ambient wind and they could land 10, 20, 30 kilometres ahead of the fire front igniting new fires under those dry conditions. Yeah, so that's part of the research that you do is looking at um, the embers uh, flow and that sort of thing. Let's let's dive into that for a moment. So uh, is it, what, what, can, what effect can that, that knowledge have that these, these embers can travel that far? How can we use that practically? Oh, this sort of knowledge is used for predicting fire behaviour. Uh, fire uh, practitioners, um, operational uh, fire practitioners will use a range of fire behaviour models to make predictions about where fires occur are likely to occur. And so uh, listeners might have heard or seen, excuse me, uh, the New South Wales Rural Fire Service put out uh, maps at various times yesterday that showed expected areas of fire spread and expected areas of, of ember attack. Uh, and, for example, uh, research, uh, our research and others' research into uh, the likely travel distance and the behaviour of, uh, of firebrands and embers uh, under those conditions can contribute in some way to preparation of maps like that. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. So the the work that you're doing there, I guess, is um, yeah helping us prepare for for what's going on. Uh, I guess the other side of things is looking at uh, the the changing climate that we have in the moment uh, at the moment and what that means. Uh, what 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 research are you doing behind um, what this this changing climate means to our fire patterns? Yeah, it's certainly a very <clears throat> uh, topical uh, thing to discuss at the moment. I mean, if you look across the, the, the uh, media and the social media, there's a lot of talk about climate change and bushfires right around the world, mm-hmm. uh, focused on Australia at the moment. And uh, so we're under pretty intense scrutiny. Uh, we've been researching the effects of climate change on bushfires for quite some time. Uh, I, I was looking back across some earlier work, and uh, almost 20 years ago we ran some uh, landscape fire models across the ACT and parts of the New South Wales high country, uh, uh, with various climate change scenarios. And one of those scenarios in, involved a plus two degrees uh, temperature scenario. And the result of that, using that fire be, landscape fire model, was um, a doubling in the area burnt uh, ac- across those landscapes. That was, the, that was the projection and the scenario for a plus two degree temperature or a climate scenario. Um, as you just mentioned, uh, we've just had our hottest year on record uh, with a temperature anomaly of about plus 1.5 degrees compared to the 1960 to 1990 climate average. We've had well below average rainfall uh, and Australia's climate has warmed by about a degree over the last uh, century. So uh, it's, it's, we're running our projections, our scenarios from about 20 years ago. We're not quite, uh, uh, you know, it's not quite at plus two degrees now, but we're seeing what can happen to bushfires in these landscapes. And as indicated before, uh, that uh, running those landscape fire models resulted in a double a doubling of area burned. And pretty much any time that we've run landscape fire models with any climate change scenario for forests in southeastern Australia, it has resulted in an increase in area burned. And so uh, the research has indicated that uh, there is a, an expectation for greater area burned by bushfires in southeastern Australia in forested areas uh, as the climate warms. Mm-hmm. 
And I guess the the interesting thing here is that a degree or two degrees doesn't uh, seem that much in the the scheme of things. You know, a couple degrees warmer, um, we can feel it out there when we're out in the weather, but uh, but uh, it doesn't feel that that big a difference in the day. But what does it really mean when we're talking a couple degrees warmer? What things is that affecting in your model that we're looking at? Yeah, well, it's affecting the dryness of the landscapes and uh, evaporation of soil, uh, of moisture from the soil, I'm sorry. Uh, and it's the accumulation of those effects over time um, resulting in uh, deeper dryness of the landscape. And so these models include a factor uh, like the drought factor, which is used in fire science to determine the extent of the, the depth of drought, if you like. And so it pushes those the levels of those variables up in the model. It means that fires are much less likely to extinguish. They, they, they will spread faster. Fire behaviour will increase. And so we found with much of our earlier work, again, going back to work from a couple of decades ago, that it could push uh, fires that are round about that extinguishment threshold above that threshold, and it means that they will be continue to be free-running fires, if you like. It's, it's, it's effectively like putting more ignitions in the landscape. Yeah. And you talked about extinguishment threshold there. Mm. What, what do you mean by that? Is that we, we, how, how do you determine when a fire is able to be extinguished? Well, it's, you, you know, it, it, it varies depending on the context, if you like. Sometimes yeah. fires will you know, extinguish after rainfall, for example, and that's what everyone's talking about at the moment, that these fires will require a major rainfall event. Uh, to end the fires, to extinguish those fires. Fires can sometimes extinguish under you know, high humidity levels at night. Uh, then there's suppression of fires and there's particular uh, uh, levels of, uh, of fire intensity, if you like, for which fire suppression will, will start to fail. And so it's measured in scientific terms, if you like, in terms of uh, energy output of the fires, kilowatts per metre of the fire line, uh, and that's applied in different ways. And so that's how that threshold is determined. Okay. And at the moment, I think the temperature's due to drop. Um, I'm certainly looking down um, the Eden Marimbula Way because I've got friends down there, and it looks like the temperatures are going much lower down there over the coming week. Is that going to have an effect too? Uh, it's certainly going to help. Uh, it's it's going to help with the, with the fire suppression in a number of different ways. So, of, of, of course, uh, lower temperatures, higher humidities and lower winds speeds will result in lower fire behaviour and give those fire suppression crews an opportunity to work closer to the fire line, to actually work more in terms of containing those fires rather than property protection. Uh, it'll likely help in terms of backburning operations. We've heard a lot about backburning over the last couple of weeks, backburning being the deliberate lighting of fires against uh, roads and other features in the landscape to burn out fuels ahead of the advancing fires. Uh, of course, backburning under you know, the severe weather conditions is very difficult. So milder conditions is helpful in terms of backburning, which is part of this fire suppression effort. Yeah, and I guess let's let's go down that uh, road of backburning versus preventative burning too. Um, does your work look at uh, preventative burns and, and how uh, we can use that throughout our, our environment? Yes, we've looked at uh, prescribed burning for fuel reduction or hazard reduction burning, as yeah. it's variously called. Uh, uh, we've looked at it in simulation modelling and we've also uh, conducted some empirical or, or field-based studies into the effectiveness of prescribed burning. Uh, I'll, I'll talk initially about our work with uh, Professor Phil Gibbons from the Fenner School of Environment Society at ANU and he and I and others, we looked at the effectiveness of prescribed burning in terms of saving houses in the Black Saturday fires in February 2009. Yeah. Our work was done subsequently to that. Uh, and we found that prescribed burning was effective in reducing the likelihood of house loss by about a third if that prescribed burning was 
conducted, say, within the last five years, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, and was close to where those houses were, say, within hundreds of metres, as opposed to kilometres away, where, which is the average distance between prescribed burning and houses. So for prescribed burning to be effective, it needs to be recent and adjacent to assets. That's the results that we found from our field-based study after the Black Saturday fires. We did find that there was another fuel factor that was more important in determining whether houses were lost in those Black Saturday fires under those extreme conditions, and that was the the percent cover of tree and shrubs within 40 metres of the house, and that was about twice as effective in terms of uh, the likelihood of house loss. So uh, uh, the likelihood of houses being lost in remnant eucalypt vegetation uh, under those extreme weather conditions experienced during Black Saturday was about 70%. Uh, if there was 100% tree and shrub cover around houses, and that could be brought down to about 30% probability of house loss if the tree and shrub cover was zero. So that was a pretty strong factor yeah. um, um, contributing to whether those houses survived or not. That's the, and that's a tough one too because uh, bringing uh, tree and shrub cover down to 0% is probably not what... Uh, people want around their house. They no. want to be surrounded by and the gum trees. Yeah, and it's not what we were suggesting. It's funny you should say that. I was just out in the last few days uh, collecting up uh, a lot of bark off our eucalyptus, eucalyptus manifera out the front of our house. We filled up our uh, green bin with that and uh, tied it up a little bit more in preparation for the ongoing fire season. Uh, but we're not advocating that people clear around their houses to the distance of 40 metres. In fact, that's not allowed under, you know, the legislation. Um, what, we're, what, we, what we wanted to draw people's attention to is, is the risk that is posed by that vegetation around houses and think about what other mechanisms can be put in place in terms of uh, houses surviving, but probably, you know, more importantly, um, um, uh, protecting life. Yeah, and so thinking about, you know, tidying yards and that sort of thing and, and getting rid of that leaf litter, is that the sort of uh, simpler actions that you're uh, thinking look, about? Th- that, that will all contribute, but there's no one, one action that yeah. will result in uh, houses surviving. As a matter of fact, we found even with zero tree and shrub cover around houses, there was still a 30% chance that houses would be lost yeah. uh, under those extreme to catastrophic weather conditions on Black Saturday. So people need to be thinking about alternatives. They need to take their advice from the local fire and emergency authorities. They need to have their bushfire plan. They need to prepare, act and survive. Yeah, okay. And that work you're talking about is very much focused around uh, houses um, and uh, and protecting them. I guess if we look uh, to the past, we often hear people talk about the Indigenous fire management uh, that had been done in the the thousands of years before uh, European settlers came over here um, and uh, that wasn't necessarily protecting houses as such but looking at the the environment as a whole um does your research look at um you know high level uh, fire management practices and that sort of thing across large habitats uh yes we i mean we 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 conduct when i say we i mean i I work with a large network (laughs) of the royal we we. i'm talking on behalf of a of of a um, large number of very valued uh, collaborators uh, I won't mention them all by name. <laughs> um, well, well, yes, we do. So uh, we, we have a, a very um, significant fire ecology research program and, you know, a couple of key messages to come out of that, for example, is that, uh, you know, the Australian vegetation is pretty resilient to fire and um, but, but there are some circumstances, you know, for example, the increased frequency of fire that we're perhaps starting, you know, that we're starting to see in terms of, uh, you know, anthropogenic global warming, for example, can put some of these systems un, uh, under strain. Um, you know, an example for the local 
listeners in the Canberra region after the 2003 fires was uh, the, the death and mortality of the uh, beautiful alpine ash trees uh, up in the Brindabella Range. And, uh, yes, you know, under... You know, the severe fire weather, uh, severe fire conditions, those trees were killed, but there was prolific regeneration of those trees uh, after the fires. Uh, and we've been monitoring those trees, uh, those initially seedlings, saplings, now trees, you know, they've sort of gone, grown up mm. over the last, uh, what is it, 15 or, or, or so years since the 2003 fires. And, you know, they're now, uh, you know, 18 metres tall, um, about half of them have matured and set seed and that's a really critical sort of time threshold because now if those stands are burnt again, they produce seed, they can regenerate. If fire's more frequent than say that 10 or 15 year period that they take to mature in sufficient numbers to guarantee the survival of the population, then we might lose that species from the landscape. So that's an example about you know, uh, that's a fire ecology example just right next door to the stands that we've been studying, uh, there are other tree species. Um, people might know them as pepmint, eucalypts, uh, dif- different species of, of eucalypts, uh, which re-sprouted uh, epicormically from buds under the bark or also from the base of the tree and from lignotubers, large woody masses under the ground, very prolifically. And they've, been, they've re-established a canopy in those 15 years since fire. So f- 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 fire will have an effect, a mortality effect, but... Uh, uh, there is regeneration mechanisms for plants. We won't go into animals. We can a little bit later if you like um, um, to allow them to survive. But frequent fire is one that's particularly problematic. Yeah. You did mention the indigenous uh, fire knowledge. We, we we haven't conducted much research directly in terms of indigenous Aboriginal fire knowledge in this part of the world, although we have a very strong engagement with the uh, ACT Murrumbung Rangers, which is a group of rangers. Uh, professional rangers, Aboriginal people from different parts of the country, including uh, more locally, uh, that work in fire management. And they play a really critical role in teaching our students in our fire courses uh, run in the Fenner School of Environment and Society uh, and exposing them, teaching them and discussing with them about traditional fire knowledge and cultural burning. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So they're all part of that learning process too, which is absolutely. Great. We're, yeah. we're we're a pretty big family. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, all right. Well, yeah. We won't get into um, uh, mammals and, and animals at the moment. We might uh, stay away from that. But I guess uh, looking at um, a, a different side of the modelling now, we've we've talked about the regeneration of the plants, uh, but uh, looking at the the weather patterns that we're seeing again to go back to that uh, i guess one of the the things you mentioned was that lightning strike had been the cause for a few of the fires starting this year mm. and I, there'd been a, a, a lot of talk on the internet about um, uh, fire generated lightning clouds and that sort of thing um, can you tell us a little bit about that and have of, of those that weather pattern yeah yeah, so uh, it's not it's not a, a direct core area of our research, uh, but, but uh, th- this is pyrocumulus cloud. It's been called f- uh, fire-generated thunderstorms in the media, which uh, is a different way of describing the same thing. Uh, I think the name has formally changed to flammogenitus recently in terms of whatever you call it. Yeah. It is fire-generated thunderstorms. Uh, so... Uh, with intense fire behaviour uh, and the development of large convective columns, which you know re- result in in very uh, fast upward moving air above fires, uh, that air will eventually cool. It's typically you know full of moisture from the fires. The output, one, some of the outputs from fires are CO two and and water vapour as well as heat. Uh, that will cool uh, and form clouds. 
uh, sometimes icy clouds uh, that can result in thunderstorms and lightning. And there's been discussion. I don't have first-hand experience in the, in, the, in the last couple of days, of course, because it's been happening all over you know, various different places in southeastern Australia. But it has resulted in lightning strikes, uh, which has been talked about in the media in terms of uh, starting new ignitions, which is, again, problematic for fire behaviour, uh, associated with... Uh, that pyro uh, cumulus cloud or fire generated thunderstorms is the potential for downbursts, which is very fast downward moving air uh, that can very significantly affect fire behaviour and was associated. Uh, it's been described by the Rural Fire Service Commissioner to be, um, have caused an, uh, that accident where a firefighter was killed uh, west of Canberra towards uh, Albury on the Duns Road fire, I believe it was called. Uh, uh, not so long, a few days ago now. Yeah, yeah that's that's uh, right. And um, those uh, those fire changes there causing, uh, you know, things that we don't see before, including uh, fire uh, whirls uh, were spotted over at the Kangaroo Island fires mm. too, of these uh, tornado-like spinning fire um, that, that's coming through as well. It really is a, a different weather system when the fire's happening, isn't it? It is, it is. I mean, fire, there's been a lot of knowledge about fire-generated weather for, for many, many decades. In fact, there was uh, a, a, a fire-generated uh, uh, weather event uh, in the Canberra, which was tornado-like to some extent, uh, that burned through the forests and some of the houses in the 2003 fires that was reported on. So it's not necessarily um, unseen before, but it's just it only you know typically occurs around very intense fire behaviour. Yeah, very interesting indeed. Well, look, uh, we're going to have a short music break, folks, uh, so we can catch our breath and bring in our next guest. Uh, so after this song, we will have Dr. AJ Hunter from uh, Doctors for the Environment Australia joining us. Um, but uh, as well, if uh, you have any questions, folks, you are more than welcome to ask them. Uh, we're across social media on Twitter and Facebook, Fuzzy Logic Sci, that's Fuzzy Logic SCI. Uh, if you want to ask us any questions uh, to either of our guests here today. Uh, but for now, let's have a short music break. And you're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 2XXFM 98.3 on the radio here in Canberra. This is uh, People Powered Radio and uh, we're streaming online at 2XXFM.org.au if you want to listen in. And you can always subscribe there as well to help support this community radio. Uh, we really are part of the community and today uh, I wanted to focus on something that really is affecting our community at the moment, both here in Canberra, down on the south coast and around the community of Australia, and that is the bushfires. Uh, before the break, we were chatting to Dr Jeff Carey about... Um, his work as a bushfire scientist with the Fenner School at the Australian National University. But now I'm uh, pleased to welcome uh, to the studio Dr Anna Greta Hunter, uh, who's a, a practising cardiologist and uh, part of the Doctors for Environment Australia and working at the ANU as well um, with the medical school there. And uh, it's, it's time to talk health, I think, because uh, we've talked about the fires going, but the health effects that we're, we're going to be seeing from these fires... Um, it's it's something that's been unprecedented in my time in Canberra, waking up to you know yellow skies, smoke filled air, and that sort of thing. Uh, what what do we know about this these these smoke effects, Anna Greta? Uh, so thanks very much for having me here today. It's um, a really important set of conversations, and uh, being part of the community is important, I think, for all of us at the moment. Um, the the most important message, I think, in terms of bushfire smoke and health, is that there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty. 
There's research on this. We know that um, PM 2.5 is one of the dominant problems associated with bushfire smoke, and I can make a range of comments around the health effects of PM 2.5 and that of bushfire smoke. So can but, we just clarify yeah. there? Because I've been seeing PM 2.5 yeah. about. What, what does that actually mean? What does mean? that actually mean? So these are tiny uh, particulate matter, PM, particulate matter. And you, when you look at the ACT Health or the other um, websites that are monitoring our air pollution, what sort of things come up on that air pollution thing? PM10, which is big, bigger particulate matter, PM2.5, which is the smaller particulate matter. And 2.5 is important because it actually gets absorbed into the bloodstream. And we know that from studies that when we breathe it in, uh, it actually enters into our, our circulation um, and then is excreted. But, uh, but that's it, it, one of the reasons why it's a more toxic component. It tends to be more toxic than PM10. But there are other elements of air pollution uh, which are significant, and so uh, problems with uh, sulphur dioxide and uh, nitric oxide or ni nitrogen dioxide. Um, and ozone was the other thing which is worth mentioning because ozone as a gas on the ground level is a tremendously toxic irritant, and it's not been a major problem in terms of health impacts of ozone in Australia. Um, the in situation for us to see ozone become a problem is when we get really high temperatures and really bad air pollution. Um, and so we have, I think, had a few concerns around ozone in the last couple of months across the eastern seaboard of Australia. So um, when we look at air quality, so there's a couple of different ways of measuring it, and I know people are tracking a lot of this stuff either on websites or on apps. Um, there are different numbers and different measurements. The PM2.5 measurement is an absolute measurement of concentration of a particular substance in air. Um, air quality indexes, uh, the Australian Air Quality Index can be different to some of the International Air Quality Index, and that's a, a, a summative uh, assessment for these different elements of toxins in air pollution. So uh, if you've got really high levels of ozone, that will influence the air quality index uh, potentially as much as things like PM2.5. Does that help? That does, yep. that does. So it's those little bits in the air. And if uh, looking at um, uh, one of the monitoring websites at the moment, yep. currently in the city... Uh, PM 2.5 is at 604. Yeah, and um, there's a two-hour lag, at least as far as I can see, on that ACT data. Yeah, yeah. So, so we watched. I watched this uh, with the events over New Year's Eve and into New Year's Day. You know, and I, I'd love to hear it from the bushfire perspective, but, but it's certainly the lived experience of these waves of, of bushfire smoke is that it might vary across the course of the the, uh, the days. That, that first wave seems to particularly smell as, as if it's burning leaves and then we lose that burning leaves smell over the next day or so and we're left with really high levels of particulate matter. Uh, and so the P, PM 2.5, depending obviously on the air, air um, uh, indices, things like wind particularly, uh, will probably peak in the next day or two and, and I guess again depending on wind uh, we don't know how long we'll have hazardous levels of PM 2.5 it's important, actually, just to talk about what that hazardous level might be. You've mentioned that the PM 2.5 level in the city is around 600. We, we know we got up around the 1,000 mark, or uh, well, not quite to 1,000, 960, I think, was the highest I saw for PM 2.5 <laughs> um, with that last wave that we had. Uh, what's hazardous? Well, the World Health Organisation and the Australian standards are that PM 2.5 should be under 25. Okay, that's, that's regarded as background, uh, probably acceptable, um, it's hazardous anything over 200. Uh, and so uh, certainly numbers that are in the hundreds heading up to the thousands um, are unprecedentedly elevated. Really, we, don't, we haven't seen this, certainly not for long periods of time or not for the weeks that we've been through um, in Australian scientific history. 
Yeah, that's right. If you look along the coast at the moment, it really is elevated in all those levels at, um, at this point in time. Um, and I guess so if it's something we haven't seen before, do we know the sorts of health effects that it's going to be having on our body? So we know that um, short exposure to PM2.5 is usually well tolerated. For most of us who are well, we'll be fine with a day or so exposure to uh, hazardous air pollution from bushfire smoke. Um, we know that the more vulnerable you are, the more likely you are, from a health perspective, the more likely you are to have a, a problem arise. And there was some studies done a few years ago that showed a relationship between an increase in the PM2.5 level and an increase in, in mortality. So it, it can certainly be of significance. Who's a vulnerable population? The vulnerable populations defined as people who have pre-existing medical conditions, particularly heart and lung conditions or other autoimmune-type conditions, those who are on regular medications for, for heart and lung disease particularly. And so it tends to be an older proportion of our population. Um, there's also, again, most the majority of women who are pregnant will be fine through this, but there is some data that shows an increase in adverse events around pregnancy. That, that tends to be really low across the population, but associations with PM2.5 exposure can affect pregnancy and can affect our young children. So young children with developing lungs, particularly very young children. Uh, we know from, from both um, studies looking at PM2.5 and similarly analogous cigarette smoke studies that there can be longer-term issues um, associated with long-term exposure. And so the question here really is what the clinical significance will be of the duration of exposure that we're under at the moment. And, and I would recognise, I, I couch this with a tremendous amount of uncertainty. We don't know what the long-term effects will be. Um, so what are the current effects? Well, we've all got itchy eyes and sore throats. A lot of us are coughing um, and coughing up a little bit. Of, it feels like you've been in a pub back in the ni 1990s uh, for a hard night out. Um, and that's, that's really what it's doing on a body level. So it, does, it tends to be an irritant to our nasopharynx. It tends to annoy our lungs. It causes irritation to our eyes. Um, so it can be a trigger for an exacerbation of asthma. It can cause asthma-type symptoms in people who don't have asthma. If you've got COPD or emphysema or underlying lung disease, it can be problematic. Because it's absorbed into the bloodstream, it increases systemic inflammation, and that's where the relationship with cardiovascular events comes from. Again, it's a tiny risk, and so people without heart disease, it, it shouldn't be a problem. But for people with, with stable angina or with known significant vascular disease, there is a, an increase in the risk associated with these periods of air pollution. There's also a change in our cellular immunity. We know that people who are exposed both uh, as smokers or with secondhand smoke exposure to cigarette smoke have an increase in infection, chest infections, respiratory tract infections, um, skin infection, urinary tract infections. So it changes our immune response to bacterial infection. And I, I think that is probably a message worth getting out there into the community is that, yes, you are slightly more likely to have a bacterial infection. And so having a good line of communication with health professionals is appropriate at this time. So there's, yeah, it's just increasing all those potentials yeah. out there at the moment. And I guess what's the, the best action that we can take at this point in time uh, for those of us who are, who are in Canberra and not going anywhere? Yeah, look, I'm, I've been here and I'm not going anywhere. And so we're all living through this. Mm. Um, and I think we would recognise that we're part of a natural study at this point in time. <laughs> um, so we will know a lot more about the health effects of this in 10 years' time. Um, I, I think we should try and minimise the amount of smoke exposure that we get. 
there's questions that have been trying to be answered. I know the ACT government are, are thinking about um, working out the differential between uh, air pollution outside and inside buildings because uh, being inside a building, particularly where air conditioning is coming from the outside, we may not find that, the, that it's as, uh, as different as we would hope in mm. terms of PM2.5 concentration. So we need to answer some of those questions and work out where the safe places to be might be. Um, we, we need to come up with some solutions on a community basis for keeping ourselves active through these periods, taking exercise out of the mix for a large portion of the population over a protracted period of time will be problematic. And again, I think it's a time for us as a community to be thinking creatively about some solutions in that space. So minimising air pollution exposure, um, are masks useful? A lot of people are wondering about masks and whether we should be wearing them all the time. Um, and uh, I think the ACT advice at the moment is that you wear them if you feel like it makes you feel better. Um, they have to be worn properly. So if you're wearing a mask, get the advice. Uh, there's some great resources, particularly on the New South Wales Health website, uh, that tells you how to fit a P2 mask. And if you're going to wear a mask, wear it properly. Otherwise, they don't work. Mm. Um, and they do, they do most definitely limit the amount of PM2.5 that you're exposed to over the period that you're wearing it correctly. Yep. The, the, and the other thing I'd seen recently too was that potentially though they're not good for um kids because they won't necessarily have the uh the lung strength to to get their breathing coming through those masks properly and i i think that recognizing that wearing a mask can be a difficult thing for many of us and i've stood in operating theaters for hours at a time uh in my my training um and so wearing a mask which changes the dynamics of your breathing can be problematic and we should be aware of that for people who are already feeling more short of breath Putting a, a, a air-tight uh, mask over your face can uh, be a little confronting, and so that that can be problematic, and it's one of the potential harms that's associated with wearing masks all the time. Fitting it on children, similarly, um, so getting children to wear it properly and wearing wearing it consistently, uh, and because their lung dynamics are different, I'm, I'm not a paediatrician, so I shouldn't comment much more beyond that. But but I can see why we're not making a blanket population recommendation that everyone should wear a mask. It's much more complicated than that. Mm, indeed, and. You talked briefly about the fact uh, we're all kind of going to be our own study now. I mean, yeah, Jeff was talking earlier about learning from the Canberra bushfires in terms of the ecology here. I presume we're going to take what happens from this, and we're going to we're going to have to learn what what effects it has on us, and and plan for for what future um, modifications and changes we might need to make. So, look, I, I think we're all finding this devastating: the mm. loss of natural environment, the loss of biodiversity. I think many, at least some, quite a few people have been working on um, highlighting the dynamic of the relationship between climate change and health. Uh, certainly there's been a tremendous body of work, particularly coming out of Canberra, particularly the work that Tony McMichael did, uh, really talking about the, the crucial dependence uh, of our human health on the world around us. And so um, we've talked for a long time at the World Health Organisation and, and organisations around the world have highlighted climate change as the single biggest risk to human health. And I suspect that for a large proportion of the medical community, even uh, up to a, six months ago, the, the reason for that concern was less obvious. Um, now we see why we've been concerned, um, because uh, our health depends on access to clean air, it, it depends on access to water and access to food, and all of those three indices are all influenced by the environment of the world around us. And so... Uh, our human health is dependent on the natural environment and um, that's one thing I'm hoping we will all be taking from this is the the need to rapidly decarbonise and address the issues around climate change. If we don't tackle climate change as the central issue right now, then the the stuff we learn 
in 10 years' time will become less relevant because if it gets hotter... So this is, this is, this is Canberra at 2 degrees, OK? We know that there'll be variation in temperature year on and year on, um, and maybe next year will be a 1-degree year, and that'll be fantastic. This year is a 2-degree year. This is what 2 degrees looks like. Does anyone else want to be here for 2.5? I think 2.5 would be really... I don't know how we survive it. I don't know how we survive 2.2. I don't know how we survive 2.3. We are we are a poster country for rapid decarbonisation. We we need action on climate change yesterday, but particularly today. Mm. And, I, and I think we were talking about this earlier. Like the the those small numbers, you know, one degree, two degrees, doesn't seem like much, but it's it's those accumulation effects that we're seeing coming through uh, that uh, really are uh, changing the the way we look at things. Um, through that, indeed. So, yeah, I guess. So, I, I have to. I've been asking people to not think about this as a bushfire. This is this is an ecosystem which is in transition. Um, in, we might have read about it in textbooks when we think about climatic shifts from ice ages to not ice ages. And I'm not a paleontologist; I don't understand it. But this is what's described during those those periods of significant change in climate. Um, the, the temperate forest is changing across eastern Australia, and it's changing because of the increase in temperature and, t- and, ch- and change in rainfall. Um, human health is not dislocated from the, the biodiversity. We are part of bio, the biodiversity in the world around us. Um, and we really need to rapidly recognise the interdependence that we have for human, human existence with the natural environment around us. It should become key to our recovery uh, when, when we get through this crisis. And I guess is that something that uh, we're looking at in terms of the, the regrowth of, of what we see in the, the ecology, Jeff? terms of that environment around us um are, are we going to be able to predict you know what, when we're going to be having those those trees back again that plant life to help support us as humans and that sort of thing yes yeah, so this is something that's been studied for a long time over many decades i mean the the we have had intense bushfires in australia over you know decades and centuries it's really the frequency of those fires that's increasing uh you can go and look at the regeneration after the 1983 bushfires, the Ash Wednesday fires, uh, for example, and the forests have regenerated. Uh, if the fire frequency increases to a point where you're starting to see two or three fires over a period of time that it takes some of those uh, species to regenerate and produce seed, those forests will be lost from that landscape but will be replaced by something else, and that will be a forest in transition. Mm-hmm. So we're really moving into that particular stage now and that's something that we haven't really seen before so it's thinking about the pattern of repeated fires over time in terms in the bushfire context that really matters yeah, so again, it's getting into that pattern of the unknown. Yeah, and, I, and I, I really do caution people. Um, we need to take the science that we've had in the past, and I use the, the health stuff that I've had from from research that's been done over the last fifty or hundred years. Um, what we're in now, we haven't experienced before, so we should really approach that with caution in terms of making assumptions that the models that we've had previously will apply to this current situation and to the years ahead of us, mm. uh, particularly if it's going to get hotter. Yeah. And I guess another concern too is that that whole factor of the unknown at the moment um, and, and dealing with these things that are completely new uh, and, and different to us. Uh, you know, I've uh, been reading stories about uh, firefighters trying to cope with their, their own mental health and that sort of thing after being out there in these, these ridiculous blazes, these mm. crazy times. And, and similar for us here, we're, we're in a 
we're in a state that's that's not normal. Um, uh, if you, know. you think about the fire experiences, I was I was in Melbourne for the Ash Wednesday event, and my, my family farm when I was young it was affected in 1982, and I was in Melbourne for the 2009 Black Saturday event. These are discrete events; they occur with a day or two of out, outrageous emotional intensity um, and significant community concern, and they resolve, and they resolved within a week or so. It rained, the cha- the the, uh, the climate restored, the, or at least the temperatures improved. And the threat of fire uh, quite, quite quickly diminishes. And what's extraordinary about this situation from a mental health perspective, and again, I'm not a psychiatrist, but I am used to dealing with people going through processes of crises. Crises are, are better or easier to adapt to when they are discrete, when they are a day or two or a week or two. And we've been now under threat from fire for a month or two in, in Canberra. We've been affected by hazardous air pollution for, for more than a month. It's two months now. Um, and that we're, we're potentially up uh, for another month or so. So again, Again, thinking creatively, uh, inviting ideas from the community about how to build our psychological resilience into a situation which is not normal, which has not been experienced before. It's a time for us all to be working together. And from your research, Jeff, you're continuing to see, um, we're going to be continuing to see these uh, events coming as as continual things, not not discrete events from what you're predicting? Oh, not absolutely continual, but uh, the point that's been made is that the duration of these bushfire events are becoming longer. Um, Bushfires have always been traumatic for anyone exposed to a bushfire, but it's the repeated exposure over a very long period of time that's being referred to and uh, the several months now that people have been exposed one way or another to the effects of these bushfires. Uh, I I referred earlier to uh, climate change research running landscape fire models with plus two degrees. We have run the same models with uh, higher increases in temperature and it just resulted in more fires in the landscape. And so it's a greater frequency of these intense bushfires that we're expecting into the future. Yeah, and look, with it all comes a, a degree of helplessness, um, and uh, you know what can we do, and and that sort of thing. And I guess that's the the question that I kind of want to end on today. Um, we're we're a science show here; we're not necessarily a political show on Fuzzy Logic, um, and so I know there are lots of calls out there for political action. Um, but what what sort of thoughts do you, you folks have in terms of what action people can take out there to feel a little bit? Uh, help less helpless and to, to also make a difference. So I, I'm happy to try and sidestep the politics although I think one of the problems with climate change is that we've all worked in our own silos and the solution to climate change is actually bringing forestry people and doctors into the same room yep. together along with the politicians and the policy makers and so um, I think for those who are listening who are working in academic spaces and in research spaces, really thinking dynamically for 2020 about in, intercollegiate deep uh, transdisciplinary disciplinary research is going to be key to success. Someone asked me the question a couple of months ago about what I would do and what I would recommend people do, and I, I had, I've got three-point plans for most things at the moment. <laughs> One, we need to call for rapid decarbonisation, and so when I've had interviews with overseas media, I've called for that globally. If, the, if, the, if there's a call for global help, the, the help is the world needs to stop burning fossil fuel as fast as possible. And so we can, we can use that in our own social media. We can talk to people. Um, I think that's important. 
I think we should recognise the interdependence of human health and human existence with the natural world around us. And so I actually think we should all be investing time and effort right now into to protecting the residual natural environment that we have left. Um, and I think it would be really... That would be one of the priority things I'd do is helping... And that helps to re-engage. And we know in terms of dealing with the mental health effects of these sorts of situations, that giving people tasks that are useful and that are going to be engaging can be really helpful. And the third thing was community. Um, and communities working together on a small scale. So it might just be the people on your block, it might be your friendship group, it might be uh, the guys in your suburb, working together on how we might combat and, and preserve and protect ourselves against what will, is likely to be a, an ongoing and challenging summer. And Jeff, from your perspective... Well, I guess from a practical bushfire perspective, uh, leading on from those points, not just an ongoing summer, but a, an ongoing uh, uh, lifestyle, if you like, in Australia, increased bushfire threats for longer and more extended periods, uh, really means people need to understand the role of bushfires in natural environments and really seriously take uh, their role in terms of preparing for bushfires uh, importantly and to prepare properly for bushfires. Think about all the things that they can do in terms of managing uh, uh, their lifestyles uh, and around their houses in terms of making sure that they stay safe, both directly from the effects of bushfires and flames, the sorts of things that we see on the TV, but also the health effects and the mental health effects that we've heard referred to as well. There are lots of things that people can do, uh, and perhaps one thing that they could do if they haven't done so already is to make sure they review their fire plan uh, or make sure that they implement uh, or establish a fire plan if they haven't done that already. We've reviewed our fire plan earlier this season uh, at home uh, and we're all aware of what needs to be done. Uh, we sort of uh, have an informal smoke management plan at home now and uh, that's something that, you know, we're all on the in. Who does what when that smoke comes in? Just to minimise exposure to people in our house uh, in terms of smoke. So we need to change the way that we live. Mm. Mm. Yeah, indeed. Okay. Well, look, thank you both for your time this morning. Um, it is a, a time of, uh, you know, high stress with the um, the fires going on and that sort of thing. But I, I really appreciate you both coming in and, and sharing your perspectives on this challenge from the, the bushfires themselves to their health effects that we're seeing around us. Um, yeah, it's just been wonderful uh, to have that input from both of you. Thank you. Thanks thank very you. much. Yeah, uh, good to be here. Yeah, so... Uh, this was uh, an episode of Fuzzy Logic today right here on uh, 2XXFM in Canberra. If you want to listen to this episode again, we do podcast. Uh, you can find our episodes. Just search for Fuzzy Logic uh, on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts and you'll find us there or Fuzzy Logic on 2xx.podbean.com. And uh, you can also find us all over social media too. We'll be back again next week right here on 2XXFM uh, for your science on a Sunday. Uh, my name's Broderick Matthews, and thank you very much for tuning in to Fuzzy Logic.